<clears throat> Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. For Book 9, Chapter 10, how do you think Andre will interact with Alexander once they meet? The last chapter had Andre breaking down the different political factions arguing for varying plans of action, but he did not seem to have a specific party of choice. What do you think he thinks is the best idea moving forward? That's a good question. I actually don't even know, having read the book. About 42 Bill Cosby's says, what? I have a feeling that Andre is going to, at first, be taken by the charm of meeting the Emperor in person, but will slowly become disillusioned by the man, mainly because the argument has been established by the old farts that the Emperor should not be a part of warfare, and will appear hamstrung by the sheer number of factions in the war room that are vying for the Sovereign's attention. Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, so far this guy is acting pretty foolish, if you ask me, very good, foolish. Um, talking about fuel, of course. Uh, theory is great, but you don't get to throw everything out that doesn't correspond with your theory because you think they were acting stupid. Yeah, well, I don't think he quite understands the nature of theory, or science, for that matter. Because he has a theory, and then he cherry-picks wars that suit that theory, and any that don't, he says, well, they just didn't fight a war properly. <laughs> But his, so his theory doesn't account for the chaos of war at all. Uh, and it leaves very little room for things like intuition, gut feeling. It's, uh, you know, I don't know, things like spiritedness or morale or I don't know, things like that. Um, which is a big theme in this book, as you'll see as it unfolds. The Russians can't stand the fact that the Germans don't have spirit in their warfare. Let's read chapter 11. Um, just keen to skim right through today, so let's just keep going. Prince Andre's eyes were still following fuel out of the room when Count Bennigsen entered hurriedly and, nodding to Bolkonsky but not pausing, went into the study giving instructions to his adjutant as he went. The Emperor was following him, and Benningson had hastened on to make some preparations and to be ready to receive the Sovereign. Chernyshev and Prince Andrei went out into the porch, where the Emperor, who looked fatigued, was dismounting. Marquis Pellucci was talking to him with particular warmth, and the Emperor, with his head bent to the left, was listening with a dissatisfied air. The Emperor moved forward, evidently wishing to end the conversation, but the flushed and excited Italian, obviously of decorum, followed him and continued to speak. And as for the man who advised forming this camp, the Drissa camp, said Polucci, as the Emperor mounted the steps and noticing Prince Andre scanned his unfamiliar face. As to that person, sire, continued Polucci, desperately, apparently unable to restrain himself, the man who advised the Drissa camp, I see no alternative but the lunatic asylum or the gallows. Without heeding the end of the Italian's remarks, and as though not hearing them, the Emperor, recognising Bolkonsky, addressed him graciously. I'm very glad to see you. Go in there where they are meeting, and wait for me. The Emperor went into the study. He was followed by Prince Peter Mikhailovich Volkonsky and Baron Stein, and the door closed behind them. Prince Andrei, taking advantage of the Emperor's permission, accompanied Polucci, whom he had known in Turkey, into the drawing room where the council was assembled. Prince Peter Mikhailovich Volkonsky occupied the position, as it were, of Chief of the Emperor's Staff. He came out of the study into the drawing room with some maps which he spread on a table and put questions on which he wished to hear the opinion of the gentleman present. What had happened was the news 
was that news, which afterward proved to be false, had been received during the night of a movement by the French to outflank the Drissa camp. The first to speak was General Armfeld, who, to meet the difficulty that presented itself, unexpectedly proposed a perfectly new position away from the Petersburg and Moscow roads. The reason for this was inexplicable, unless he wished to show that he could too have an opinion, but he urged that at this point the army should unite and there await the enemy. It was plain that Armfeld had thought out that plan long ago and now expounded it not so much to answer the questions put, but in which in fact his plan did not answer, as to avail himself to the opportunity to air it. It was one of the millions of proposals, one as good as another, that could be made as long as it was quite unknown what character the war would take. Some disputed his arguments, others defended them. Young Count Toll objected to the Swedish general's views more warmly than anyone else, and in the course of the dispute drew from his side pocket a well-filled notebook which he asked permission to read them. In these voluminous notes, Toll suggested another scheme, totally different from Armfeldt or Fuel's plan of campaign. In answer to Toll, Pellucci suggested an advance and an attack, which he urged could alone extricate us from the present uncertainty and from the trap, as he called the Drissa camp, in which we were situated. During all these discussions, Fuel and his interpreter Walzogen, his bridge in court relations, were silent. Fuel only snorted contemptuously and turned away, to show that he would never demean himself by replying to such nonsense as he was now hearing. So when Prince Volkonsky, who was in the chair, called on him to give his opinion, he merely said, Why ask me? General Armfeld has proposed a splendid position, with an exposed rear, or why not this Italian gentleman's attack, very fine, or a retreat, also good. Why ask me, said he, why you yourselves know everything better than I do. But when Volkonsky said, with a frown, that it was the Emperor's name that he asked his opinion, Fuel rose and suddenly, growing animated, began to speak. Everything has been spoiled, everything muddled, everybody thought they knew better than I did, and now you come to me... How mend matters, there is nothing to mend. The principles laid down by me must be strictly adhered to, said he, drumming on the table with his bony fingers. What is the difficulty? Nonsense. Childishness. He went up to the map and, speaking rapidly, began proving that no eventuality could alter the efficiency of the Drissa camp, that everything had been foreseen, and that if the enemy were really going to outflank it, the enemy would inevitably be destroyed. Pellucci, who did not know German, began questioning him in French. Walzogen came to the assistance of his chief, who spoke French badly, and began translating for him, hardly able to keep pace with fuel. He was rapidly demonstrating that not only all that had happened, but all that could happen had been foreseen in his scheme, and that if there were now any difficulties, the whole fault lay in the fact that his plan had not been precisely executed. He kept laughing sarcastically, he demonstrated, and at last contemptuously ceased to demonstrate, like a mathematician who ceases to prove in various ways the accuracy of a problem that has already been proved. Walzogen took his place and continued to explain his views in French, every now and then turning to Fuel and saying, Is it not so, Your Excellency? But Fuel, like a man heated in a fight who strikes those on his own side, shouted angrily at his own supporter, Walzogen. Well, of course, what more is there to explain? Pellucci and Michaud both attacked Walzogen simultaneously in French. Armfeld addressed Fuel in German. Toll explained to Volkonsky in Russian. Prince Andrei listened and observed in silence. 
Of all these men, Prince Andre sympathised most with Fuel, angry, determined, and self and sorry, and absurdly self-confident as he was. Of all these present, evidently he alone was not seeking anything for himself, nursed no hatred against anyone, and only desired that the plan formed on a theory arrived at by years of toil should be carried out. He was ridiculous and unpleasantly sarcastic, but yet he inspired involuntary respect by his boundless devotion to an idea. Besides this, the remarks of all except Fuel had, no, had one common trait that had not been noticeable at the Council of War in 1805. There was now a panic fear of Napoleon's genius, which, though concealed, was noticeable in every rejoinder. Everything was assumed to be possible for Napoleon. They expected him from every side, and invoked his terrible name to shatter each other's proposals. Fuel also seemed to consider Napoleon a barbarian, like everyone else who opposed his theory. But besides this feeling of respect, Fuel evoked pity in Prince André. From the tone in which the courtiers addressed him, and the way Pollucci had allowed himself to speak of him to the Emperor, but above all, from a certain desperation in Fuel's own expressions. It was clear that the others knew, and Fuel himself felt that his fall was at hand, and despite his self-confidence and grumpy German sarcasm, he was pitiable, with his hair smoothly brushed on the temples and sticking up in tufts behind. Though he concerned the f concealed the fact under a show of irritation and contempt, he was evidently in despair that the sole remaining chance of verifying his theory by a huge experiment and proving its soundness to the whole world was slipping away from him. The discussions continued a long time, and the longer they lasted, the more heated became the disputes, culminating in shouts and personalities and heat and the less it was possible to arrive at any general conclusion from all that had been said. Prince André, listening to this polyglot talk and to these surmises, plans, refutations and shouts, felt nothing but amazement at what they were saying. A thought that had long since and often occurred to him during his military activities, the idea that there is not and cannot be any science of war, and that therefore there can be no such thing as a military genius, now appeared to him an obvious truth. What theory and science is possible about a matter the conditions and circumstances of which are unknown and cannot be defined, especially when the strength of the acting forces cannot be ascertained. No one war sorry, no one was or is able to foresee in what condition our our or the enemy's armies will be in a day's time, and no one can gauge the force of this or that detachment. Sometimes when there is not a coward at the front to shout we are cut off and start running, but a brave and jolly lad who shouts hurrah, a detachment of 5,000 is worth 30,000, as at Schoengraben, while at times 50,000 run from 8,000, as at Austerlitz. What science can there be in a matter in which, as in all practical matters, nothing can be defined, and everything depends on innumerable conditions, the significance of which is determined at a particular moment, which arrives no one knows when. Armfelt says our army is cut in half, and Pellucci says we have got the French army between two fires. Michaud says that the worthlessness of the Drissa camp lies in having the river behind it, and Fuel says that that is what constitutes its strength. Toll proposes one plan, Armfelt another, and they are all good and all bad. And the advantages of any suggestions can only be seen can be seen only at the moment of trial. And why do they speak of a military genius? Is a man a genius who can order bread to be brought up to the right at the right time and say who is to go to the right and who to the left? 
It is only because military men are invested with pomp and power and crowds of sycophants, flatter power, attributing to it qualities of genius it does not possess. The best generals I have ever known were, on the contrary, stupid or absent-minded men. Bagration was the best. Napoleon himself admitted that, and of Bonaparte himself, I remember his limited, self-satisfied face on the field of Austerlitz. No one, sorry, not only does a good army commander not need any special qualities, on the contrary, he needs the absence of the highest and best human attributes, love, poetry, tenderness, and philosophic inquiring doubt. He should be limited, firmly convinced that what he is doing is very important, otherwise he will not have sufficient patience, and only then will he be brave, a brave leader. God forbid that he should be humane, should love or pity or think of what is just and unjust. It is understandable that a theory of their genius was invented for them long ago because they have power. The success of a military action depends not on them, but on the man in the ranks who shouts, We are lost, or who shouts, Hurrah! And only in the ranks can one serve with assurance of being useful. So thought Prince Andre as he listened to the talking, and he roused himself only when Pellucci called him and everyone was leaving. At the review next day, the Emperor asked Prince Andre where he would like to serve, and Prince Andre lost his standing in court circles forever by not asking to remain attached to the sovereign's person, but for permission to serve in the army. Damn, bold move, Andre. The emperor himself asks where he wants to be, expecting him to say, you know, in the inner circle with the emperor. And he says, I'd like to go and serve in the army. Respect. Mad respect. Uh, The man has integrity. Got to give him that. All right, have your say about it on the subreddit. Thanks for listening. See ya tomorrow.